for everything we owe you yeah. And when we reflect on the time before we came to know you How we were unbelievers, committing tons of treason We had a hundred reasons why we wouldn't come to Jesus But they were all excuses, yeah. because our thoughts were useless That's what the dark produces, Father, you already knew this We were foolish and clueless, yeah. just as ruthless as Judas Who knew that you would choose to pursue us and move the woo Testing, testing, are we good? All right, good morning, church. How you doing? It's good to be with you guys again. Um, so, a lot of people who know me know that I am very disinterested in basketball overall, okay? Which is kind of a curse, since a lot of people here like basketball. But uh, I am also very excited about a rousing debate. And so uh, base, basketball has one of the biggest debates ever. It's the debate about whether Michael Jordan... Yeah, okay. Okay, see, it's already starting. Michael Jordan versus LeBron James, which one is the GOAT? Okay? Now, when I first heard about this debate, saw it on my news feed on Facebook... I thought to myself, what's the goat? And so, a lot of you might be in the same position as me, so let me give you a definition. The goat means, the, it's an acronym, it means greatest of all time, okay? Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Now, the debate is, you know, there's a lot of things that people talk about, but um, the basis of it is kind of Michael Jordan has won six NBA Finals. No defeats, right? He's retired now. Now, LeBron James has been to eight NBA Finals, but he's only won three of them. He's lost five. Now, based on that, I like a win. So I'm going to probably sign with Michael Jordan. Yeah, I mean, besides... LeBron James didn't beat a team of aliens in basketball. In, in, uh, <laughs> so, so Michael Jordan is, I'd have to say, the GOAT. Now, one thing that I want to point out, though, when we talk about Michael Jordan, what we say about him reflects what we believe about him and the other people around him. You see, LeBron James, his entire career is based upon how he compares to Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is the standard. And he, Michael Jordan had nicknames like Air Jordan or his airness because he had the ability to do a slam dunk from the free throw line. <laughs> right? Amen, right? <laughs> Michael Jordan, everyone gets excited. <laughs> um, and, you know... People have the, have the term, do it like Mike, because Mike was considered, Michael Jordan was considered the epitome of greatness in an athlete. So the way that we talk about Michael Jordan reflects what we believe about him. In the same way, what we say about God reflects what we believe about him. So... I, it is my, I'm super excited because today we're going to be introducing a new series. Uh, it's going to be four weeks, and it's going to be called Doxa. 
where we're going to break down four different doxologies from the scriptures. Now, doxa is a Greek word that means glory, splendor, or grandeur. And a doxology is a short expression of praise for something that makes God glorious, splendid, and grand. Now, it can be a prayer, it can be a song, or an outburst of praise. But in every situation, it's something where you take a truth about God and you amplify it for the purpose of worship. Now, at the Brook, we believe that how we worship reflects what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves. So as we study these doxologies, we want to see how they inform how we can turn our lives into a white flag life of worship where we are surrendered to the Lord. Our first doxology that we're going to be talking about today is in Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. So go ahead, stand with me. Um, Hebrews is near the end of your Bibles. It is before the book of James and after Philemon. I believe it is page 1010 in the Bibles in front of your seat. And after I read, I'll pray, and then you can sit down. That again is Hebrews 13, verses 20 through 21. The text says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that these two verses are packed with glory. And Lord, I pray that as we hear your word today, that we do not harden our hearts in response. I pray, Lord, that it would be sweet medicine to sick souls today. Father, we thank you for the goodness that you gave us in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that Jesus looks good today in our hearts. Give us the joy that we need to get through today and through the week. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would cause me as I preach to be excited about you and that you would awaken something in dead hearts today, Lord. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I had the privilege in college of leading a Bible study through the book of Hebrews. And what's really great about our doxology today is it takes all of these ideas that it talks about in 13 chapters in Hebrews and summarizes it. And he doesn't just do it in a, in a conclusion. What's unique about our doxology is that he does it in a prayer. And it is a prayer that is sandwiched between two doxas, two praises to the God he's praying to. And the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it, but we do know that it was written to Jewish Christians. These are, Jew, these are Jews who came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world that was prophesied in the Old Testament. 
He was the one who was going to save people from their sins and fulfill the promises that God gave to the Jews. Now, when they first believed, they were excited about their faith. But that didn't last long because pretty soon after, fellow Jews began to persecute them. People who they used to call family, who they went to the synagogues with on Saturday and ate meals with, all of a sudden were working against them. It started first with them being ostracized. People who they loved stopped talking to them. But then it began to get worse. They started taking their property, so leaving many of them destitute. And then some of these believers were even thrown in prison and tortured. In light of all of this, under so much pressure, many of these new young believers began to wonder if the newness of the message of Jesus was worth it. Is it really worth all this pain? And many of them began to stop meeting with other Christians because they were afraid of what would happen. Some of them even began to want to abandon Jesus for their old lives under the Jewish faith. And who can blame them? What's wrong with going back to the, their old lives where they were in control, they were comfortable, and they were good people serving under the law. The message of Hebrews is written into this messy situation. And the letter of Hebrews' message to these Christians is that, yes, things are terrible. Things are actually going to get worse. It specifically warns these Christians that some of them will have their lives taken from them. But in all of this, Jesus is worth it. He gives argument after argument after argument why leaving Jesus and abandoning him for the old Jewish faith was not going to be good. It was going to be terrible. He points to the, the fact that the prophets and the old ways of worshiping God And the old leaders were all really pointing to Jesus and the way that he lived his life. The clear call of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He is better than the angels. He is better than the prophets. He is a better high priest. He is a better king. He is a better Moses. And he is a better Joshua. And he is leading us towards a better covenant. He's leading us to a place where we have never been, unlike anything we can imagine. Jesus is better in all, over all, and through all. And in light of all of these truths, he summarized them into this prayer. Let's read the verse again. Verse 20 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now I want us to pay attention to this. Who is he praying to? He says that he's praying to the God of peace. Now, this may seem like a simple phrase, but I don't want us to move past this. Because these Christians are going through a lot of chaos. 
And when you're in the middle of chaos, all you crave is peace. Let me show you what I mean. Maybe you're at a family reunion that you've been dreading. And after a few passive-aggressive comments, everyone starts fighting, right? Things break out into an enormous argument, just like you expected. Or you, you are a student, and it's finals week. You've pushed off all of your assignments up to this point. Your GPA is not any good. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're overwhelmed. Or you're sitting outside of your car because you got late from work and your kids are going crazy. You know that's going on in the house because you can hear it. You're fighting with your husband and all you want to do is have a few moments of peace. In those situations, all you want to do is step, step into a quiet room, get in the car, drive away, go on vacation, turn on the TV, Play some video games. Anything that you can do to get back into control. That is what these people are feeling. They're experiencing wave after wave after wave of persecution. And all they want to do is get back to a place where they know what's going on. And so they're saying to themselves, might just be worth going back to the old Jewish faith where I can feel in control. And what this name for God is telling them is that, yeah, things are pretty bad right now. And there's a lot of chaos. But the peace that God is bringing you is worth the chaos. God is a God of peace. So he takes pleasure in bringing you peace. He's the one who in the middle of all of the chaos is going to bring about peace in your life and a true peace, not a temporary peace, but a deep peace. A deep peace that allows you to resist sin to the point of drawing your own blood. A peace that transcends understanding. This is the God that the author of Hebrews is praying to. Now he describes this God even further in the next phrase. He says... He's the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Now, Hebrews is full of illustrations of the greatness of the crucifixion and what God accomplished on the cross. This is the only reference to the resurrection in the entire book. So this is packed with meaning. Jesus is important because he accomplished what no one else could. He is the only one who was faithful to the commands of God. All of the other leaders before him led for their own gain, but Christ led with love. And he was perfect. He obeyed where everyone else failed. And he was able to do this because Jesus is the Son of God. He is God himself. In fact, he is described as the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Despite all of this, God, God, the Son, decides to take on human flesh, becoming like us, taking on our nature, except without sin, so that he could not only be our God, but also be our brother. And he allowed himself 
to be tortured and killed on the cross by us so that through believing in him, we could have our sins forgiven and have a relationship with God. Before, our shame prevented us from approaching the throne of God. But in his death on the cross, Christ allowed us to approach his throne and to do so with confidence. And after 13 chapters of this, he finally gets to the resurrection. The God of peace raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, brought him up again. And this is not a metaphorical or a spiritual resurrection. This is a physical resurrection. Instead of rotting and decomposing in the grave, his dead lungs filled with air. His brain, which was dead for three days, all of a sudden burst with thoughts and feelings. Our God did not leave our Lord in the grave. He brought him into the light of day. And he brings us to the next phrase, which is, describing the Lord Jesus, it says he is the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, why does he use this specific phrase, the great shepherd of the sheep? And the key is, earlier on in verse 20, when he says, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. That word brought again in the Greek implies being brought up or led up, brought up. Now, he could have used a different term. He could have used rose him from the dead, resurrected him, but he chose this word, led up. This is an allusion to Isaiah 63.11, which talks about the exodus in which Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery and through the Red Sea on dry ground. But in Isaiah 63.11, it isn't Moses who led the Israelites out. It was God who led Moses out so that he could lead the Israelites out. God knew that the Israelites needed a leader. And so he raised their leader out of the watery pit and into life so that the Israelites could walk on dry ground away from Egyptian slavery, which they'd been in for hundreds of years. And he specifically uses this phrase with Jewish Christians because for the Jews... This is the greatest miraculous act of God's salvation. And in the life of Jesus, it's as if God is saying, you thought that was cool? You you liked when I brought Moses out of the Red Sea and saved you from slavery? Wait until I raise your great shepherd from the dead and forgive your sins. The God of peace led our Lord Jesus out of his grave so that those who put put their faith in him can be led out of their graves. For those of you who are afraid of death and don't let your minds go there because it's something you're too frightened of, stop being afraid of death. You have a great shepherd who's alive. He's tasted the darkness of death, that eternal darkness, and he's come out lungs breathing. And the scriptures promise you that if you put your hope in him, you will join in his resurrection. 
Now, some of you here, it's the opposite. You're not afraid of death. In fact, you, are so, you feel so hopeless in your life that you crave death. You want the peace that comes with endless darkness. You're, especially in those moments when you are depressed and you can't stand another moment of your anxiety and fear, you want that experience of endless nothingness. And I need to tell you this. If the grave brought you peace, the God of peace would leave you in your grave. But he doesn't. True shalom, true peace is not found in death. You weren't made for it. You were made for life. And Jesus drank the cup of poison, the chaos of this life, and the chaos of death, so that when we get to cup, get to the cup, there's no poison left. He is the pioneer who broke through the chasm of death, so that in him we might have life forever. Now, some of you here are saying, that's great, Josh. I'm super excited about the resurrection from the dead. But unless something happens, I still have, you know, maybe 30 years left or more, right? And I don't know what I'm going to do with all the trash going on in my life when I get out those church doors, let alone the rest of my life. I don't have any easy answers for you. But what I can tell you is you have a shepherd who's alive. And he is leading you to places of eternal joy and contentment. Now, I'm sure many of us have served under bad leadership, right? Can I get an amen? I can't be the only one, right? We've had leaders who just go through the motions. They don't seem to care about leading people well. Those people don't get you through hard times. Those people don't bring you to greater heights. That's why earlier in chapter 13 of Hebrews, the author tells the Christians, obey your leaders because they're the ones who are supposed to watch over your soul. And then he says about those leaders in verse 17, in the latter part of the verse, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Leaders who do not lead with joy do you no good. Do you think Jesus shepherds and leads you begrudgingly? You think he's complaining when you pray? Oh man, I've got to govern the universe and I've got to spend time with her again. (laughs) How in the world... Are you guys still struggling with that same issue in your marriage? Are you serious right now? You're still struggling with that same sin? How many times do you want to reset? No! That Savior does you no good. That's why in Hebrews 12, 2, it says about Jesus... Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy 
The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We have a Savior who bore the pain and ridicule of the cross and did it with joy. And do you think he then rose from the dead three days later and sits at the right hand of the Father and grumbles? No! A thousand times, no! He is eternally and immensely happy with you. If you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus is like one of those people who, you know, they're they're uncomfortable to be around because they're so happy. That's how Jesus looks at you. And he is leading you to places of great joy. Now, you're going to suffer, and some of you are going to suffer more intensely than you ever have in your life. But we have a promise that we have a good shepherd who is going to lead us through the suffering, through the disappointment, and into fields of peace. And that brings us to the next phrase. He says that the God of peace does this by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, I'm going to get to what the eternal covenant means here in a second, but I first want to address the first part because it's really important. He says that the God of peace does this. He, he raises Jesus from the dead by or because of the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, the blood refers to Christ's sacrifice on the cross, where he spilled his blood so that he could take the penalty of our sin so that we could be forgiven. And if the author of Hebrews would have said that the God of peace forgave our sins by the blood of the eternal covenant, that would make sense to a lot of us. Because there's plenty of, of situations in the Old Testament where it talks about the blood, the blood sacrifice accomplishing the forgiveness of sins. But he doesn't say that. He says that, Jesus, that God accomplished the resurrection of Jesus by the blood of the eternal covenant. Jesus accomplished his own resurrection by his death. Now, ex- let me explain to you what I mean by that. In Romans, in Romans it talks about the wages of sin... The, the things that we deserve because of the bad things that we do, the result is death. But Jesus never sinned. He always abo- obeyed his Father. And because of that, his wages are not death. His wages are life. And so, all of those who wholeheartedly believe in Jesus... The promise of Scripture is that you will be raised from the dead and you will never die again. But your resurrection is by grace. His resurrection is by right. He is the only one in all of history who deserves to be risen from the dead. That is how great our Christ is. Now, um, to the next phrase specifically talking about the blood. The reason why it's called the blood of the eternal covenant, I need to give you some historical background. Because covenants, covenants are 
what the ancient world understood as oaths or treaties, deals that you would make with people. It could be between kings or nations or between two farmers who agree that they're always going to support each other in the winter no matter what. But there was different types of covenants. Really serious covenants you sealed with a blood sacrifice. Oftentimes the, the sacrifice of a bull or a sheep or a goat. But really serious sacrifices were always sealed with blood. That's why in the Old Testament, any time the Jews wanted to recommit themselves to following the Lord, they would make a blood sacrifice. Or if God had a really momentous covenant that he wanted to make with his people, he did it through a blood sacrifice. When Jesus lays down his life and spills his blood on our behalf, it is sealing the most momentous covenant ever. It is the act of not just an animal and not just a person, but God himself to bear the penalty of our sins and to guarantee that God will be faithful to you if you believe in him. And he calls it the eternal covenant. He calls it the eternal covenant because if you're someone who's going to be risen from the dead and never die again, you need a promise that's going to last as long as you're going to. Something eternal. So Christ spilling his blood, something of infinite worth, is the only thing that can seal a covenant that continues on forever. Something with no expiration date. Something you can lean on. And it is called the eternal covenant. Now, what is this eternal covenant? This covenant is talked about earlier in the book of Hebrews in chapters 8 through 10. It's called the, eternal co- the new covenant. And it's prophesied many times in the Old Testament. So I just want to read one of those prophecies for you. It's in Jeremiah 32, verses 38 through 41. And it says, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant, that I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. And I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all of my heart and all of my soul. This covenant is something to be excited about. This is really good news for us. For those of you who believe that the only way that you can be right with God is through what Jesus did on the cross and you entrust yourself to him, this promise, this covenant, is saying that God will be your God. And that before, when you had to please God in your own strength and couldn't do it, Now he gives you a new heart, a new way, so that you aren't doing it alone. He is working his strength in you. And it also says that he will never turn away from doing you good. And not only will he not turn away, he will make sure that you won't turn away and he'll keep you safe. 
The God of the universe, who you sometimes feel is angry with you, if you have your faith in him, this says that he not only works to do you good, but he rejoices in it with all of his heart and soul. That's good news. And I've got a whole other verse to talk about here, but I want to speak to you here today who maybe have never entrusted your souls to Jesus. You need to do that today. Maybe you haven't done it before because you feel like you're not worthy of the grace of God, or maybe you weren't sure if you even believed in God. Maybe it's never made sense to you before that Jesus would lay down his life for your sins. But right now, the God of peace who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead is calling you to entrust yourself to him. Entrust yourself to the good shepherd who allowed his body to be broken and to die so that your sins could be forgiven and so that you could always know that God is working for your good. Lay aside anything that's holding you back. Listen to the call of the Spirit of God Lift up your white flag and surrender yourself to the good shepherd who will lead you well. Now we get to the next verse. In verse 21, it says that this is where we're actually getting to the prayer, okay? So, So before he was just talking about how good God is, now he's actually getting to what he's requesting. And he says, and he's asking God, to equip them with everything good that they may do his will. This is his prayer. It's broken out in two parts. The first part, that he may equip them to do his will and that he will work in them in order for them to please him. He's praying over these people who are having their property taken away from them, their freedom taken from them, and eventually many of them their lives. Lord, They're losing everything. But you're worth it. Your will is worth it. Equip them to do your will and give them everything good in order to do so. And when he says will, uh, when he says everything, he means everything. So this is talking about physical resources, but it's also talking about emotional ones. Like when you're having difficulty at work loving a coworker who knows how to get under your skin and really they tend to always be trying to undercut you or you don't have the courage to share your faith with your cousins because they know all your dirt. What this is promising is that when you ask the Lord, he will equip you and give you the things in your life so that you can stir your heart towards love, even when it's hard. And he will give you the words and the courage, the bravery, to share the good news of what Jesus has done for your cousin. And he also, this is also including spiritual equipping. You see, in order for us to witness to the goodness of God, we need the infilling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And we need his blessings of the spiritual gifts so that we can serve him outside of our natural capacities. Let me, get, let me tell you what I mean by that. 
You see, back, back in the first church, Peter and John, who were in the inner circle of Jesus during his life, they watched him teach, they, they saw him perform miracles. In one day, in order to fulfill the will of God, they needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit twice. And Stephen and his buddies in the first church, they were in a situation where they were responsible for serving food to the widows in the community. And they were required to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to do so. If they needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to serve tables, how much more do you think you need the filling of the Holy Spirit to live out the will of God in your life? Now, I want to speak about this equipping because this is important. Anytime that we see a a prayer like this in the Scriptures, one of the inspired authors of Scripture, this is a prayer that is inspired so that we can pray it as well. And if the Holy Spirit inspires you to pray a prayer, you're praying the will of God in your life. So this is a prayer that you can know without a doubt he's going to answer. So I want to speak to two groups of people here. The first group are those of you who actually do not feel like you need to be equipped by the Lord to do his will. You feel self-sufficient. Now, most of you would not put yourself in that category because how many of us want to say, I'm good, I don't need God, right? Not many of us. But many of us are actually in that boat. Let me tell you how you can know that you may be in this boat. Think about this. You're in a stressful situation and you're feeling your inability. You're overwhelmed. What is the first thing that you do? Are you so concerned with doing the will of God that you ask him to give you the words and the actions to do his will? Or is the first thing that you do is try your own strategies? Maybe you zone out. You turn on the TV. You open up your phone, the Facebook app, and you just scroll. You just scroll. And you're scrolling away your joy. Or maybe you're a little bit more productive. Maybe you structure your day with task after task after task, dodging the issue, doing things where you can feel more in control. Maybe you give up on doing the will of God altogether. And you give yourself over to over-drinking. Or you indulge in feeding yourself with pornography every night. This is pride, people. This is saying, I don't need you. Or there's those of you who feel self-sufficient. You, you, you're actually thriving in life. You're doing well. But it's been a while since you've read your Bible and you're actually living your life your own way. When you're doing that, it's a good chance you're not actually concerned with the risky will of God. Because the will of God is always going to be pushing you outside of yourself. Pushing you outside of your sustainability bubble. Earlier on in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus was killed outside of the city in shame, like a common criminal. 
And then it tells us that we are to figuratively go out of the city and do the same, bear the same reproach that he did. And in order to do that, we need to realize that that's going to be uncomfortable, it's going to be difficult, and we need his equipping. Now, for those of you who, that's not you. You know you're not able. You feel your weakness. Maybe you're a new believer, and you don't even know what the will of God is or how to do it. Or because of your health or your family situation, you can't do the things you want to do. I need to tell you, that's a really good place to be. The Bible has a lot of promises about you. Paul says that Christ's power is made evident in our weakness. And Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So if you don't know what the will will of God is and you want to do it, The will of God is revealed in these words. The Bible is the word of God where the will of God is revealed. And once you realize what the will of God is, and you ask him, Lord, help me understand this, ask him to equip you with all of the resources so that you can do it. And you are promised that he will do it. Now that brings us to the last phrase, or not the last, but the next phrase here where it says, He's, he's, ask, he's asking God, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. This is also really great news for us, church. Because you were made to please God. You were made to be in a relationship with God in which God is incredibly overjoyed at the love that you share with him. But because our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, and we continue to sin, we fall short of that perfect standard. And we cannot please God on our own. What this is saying is that now in the new covenant, since he gives us a new heart inclined to love God, we don't have to do it on our own. God is working in us. Now we are working, but in our working, God is working. And he not only equips us with all of the resources and outside things that we need to do his will, he also equips us with the motivation and the want to do his will. Anytime you want to do the will of God, it's because God is guiding and gifting you that want. That turns pleasing God from a a work into a gift. Now, especially for those of you who are in that second category, those who feel your, your weakness, this is, this is exceptional. This is a life changer. Maybe you've, you've wondered before, have I ever pleased God? Not, not who he thinks I'm going to be in heaven. Is he pleased with me now? Is he pleased with me? Yes. Yes, he is. He is immensely pleased with you. And he's pleased with you because he has worked in you every good thing that you've done so that you have lived out in your life actually things that please him. Do you know when God is pleased with you? 
He's pleased with you when you're at the edge of divorce and you are holding on by a thread. And you pray to him, you say, God, I cannot get through another day. Lord, he is so bitter and I'm trying so hard, but I can't. Please work in me to, so that I can love him. God, I, am, I, I don't know what to do. I cannot lead my family and my wife if she doesn't trust me. I can't get through the next hour without your sustenance. Please give me the strength. That prayer is a prayer that pleases God 100% of the time. Now, you are never promised in Scripture a good marriage. You were never promised a satisfying marriage. Many of you have that, but we're not all in that category, so if that's not you, don't feel bad. What we are promised is that when we desire to honor the covenants that we made at the altar, God will empower us, and he will give us joy for the next day. He will give us joy for the next hour. So that you will get through it with faithfulness. That is when God is pleased with you. Or maybe you feel that you're not talented enough to do God's will. You don't know enough things. And you're, you're a student in school. And you're not sure if you should. But you take the leap and you, you, you defend your faith. You, you tell people why you believe in Jesus, and then they make you look like an idiot. They stump you. Any time that God empowers you to share the gospel or to do or, or to witness to, to the love that you have for God, even when it's difficult, it's something that God is pleased with. Because this is important. God, God's primary purpose for a follower of Jesus is not that you be effective. It is faithfulness. You're not always going to be effective, but through faithfulness, you can please the Lord. Now, when you are effective, that's when you've got to praise God. Lord, I did well. Thank you for working in me. Bring you glory, Lord. Because your purpose in life is to bring God glory. And you will realize that you will be most satisfied and, mo- and experience the most pleasure in your life when you capture this truth. Your pleasure is intrinsically tied to God's pleasure. And when God rose our Lord Jesus from the grave, just like how it was done actually through the sacrifice of Christ, God working in us to please him is done through Jesus. That's what it says in the next phrase, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundation of your salvation, your forgiveness, and your good works. God is pleased with you because God is pleased with Jesus. And what we have seen when we look at the full picture of this prayer is that at its basis, it takes God to please God. 
And since that's the case, since God is perfect and we don't meet that standard, God the Son pleases God the Father for us. When God the Father raised our Lord Jesus, the Son of God, from the grave so that we could also be risen in him if we believe, it is because God the Son did what no one else could. Since since our whole joy, our pleasure, is intrinsically tied to God's pleasure, and since it takes God to please God, God the Son pleased God for us, in us, and through us. Anytime that you please God, it's because Jesus did it. And in light of that, our only response is the last phrase. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Your eternal happiness is not separated from the grace of Christ at any point. So for all eternity, our worship goes to Jesus. And here at the end, what the author of Hebrews is doing is he is taking his request and turning it into a praise. Likewise, even our most desperate pleadings to the Lord should bleed with worship. So church, don't let a day go by that you do not let your life express your dependence on God. And do not be afraid to take risks. Take them. Because in those risks, God will equip you. And don't be afraid to let other people know your vulnerabilities. Let people know your weaknesses. Because when God works in you and equips you to accomplish and be faithful in the midst of that, you will be calling people to worship him for whom glory is due forever and ever. Amen. Now, I'm going to close in prayer. And as I pray, I want to ask the worship team to come up. And I, I want to ask the, the, the prayer team also to come up. They'll be on both ends and in the back. If the Spirit of God has moved you in any way, or if you have any need, I would encourage you to pray. Come up to someone who will pray with you because we need that equipping. Father, I thank you that you are eternally good. I thank you that in two verses, just a couple sentences, Lord, you can pack it with glory. Thank you, Lord, that in you we have life. And I ask God that as we go through our week, I pray that you would equip us to do your will. Work in us so that we may please you. And Jesus, to you be glory forever and amen.